quick note before we get started, if you're listening to these as they're coming out, I'm scheduled to appear as a guest in the commentary booth at Live at the Bike this Thursday the 14th at sometime around 7 p.m. Pacific. I'll be joining Mark Goon, who's actually the guy who said the thing to me about professional poker players being cockroaches that inspired parts of the first episode of this podcast. I'm told plans could change, and if they do, I will keep you updated via my Twitter account, which is at Third Walking, and I will post a link in the show notes to Live at the Bikes stream. Thanks. The next two episodes chronicle a small leap into the unknown, as I travel to play the World Series of Poker for several weeks. I've played tournaments before, but never on this sort of scale. So why? Why now? What makes a cash game grinder play tournaments, and what sorts of adjustments will I need to make? Welcome to Third Man Walking. It's early June, and later this month, I'm going to Las Vegas to play the main event of the World Series of Poker for the first time. Two years ago, I was teaching and writing and playing poker in a city in the Midwest. That was my life then. I was overworked and underpaid, at least for the teaching and writing, but I was comfortable. It was a great place to build a bankroll, form some relationships in poker, and get my feet wet. I'm glad I got to live there when I did. But the poker scene was shrinking as some of the bigger No Limit games dried up, and within poker, or at least within No Limit Hold'em, there was nowhere left for me to go. I was playing in the biggest No Limit games in the city, but that typically meant 5-10, 1, or maybe 2 days a week, 2-5, 1 or 2 days a week, and then a deep 1-2 game any other day I wanted to play. There were only 1 or 2 tournaments a year with buy-ins of over $1,000, and only a few others the top 500. You could still make a decent living playing poker there, and I have friends who were still doing so, but your upside was limited, especially if you weren't interested in playing Pot Limit Omaha, which had some of the best action. So, last year, I did move to a city better known for poker. First and foremost, I told myself I need to make enough money to live and to retire. But secondly, I want to push myself to be something. If all I'm ever going to be as a poker player is what I am now, a pretty good mid-stakes grinder, that's okay. But I want to live in a place where bigger things are possible. To be something in poker isn't as easy as it once was. In 2003, Chris Moneymaker's win in the main event led to a poker boom, or really, a bubble. Suddenly, everyone wanted to play poker, and for the most part, everyone could, because no one, including if we're being honest, a lot of professional poker players, was really all that great. Before 2003, poker was just a weird game that visor-wearing guys played in basements and back rooms. As far as I can tell, avoiding getting cheated or robbed or perhaps getting proficient at cheating yourself, were big parts of the skill set required to play professionally. Poker strategy was crude because it was hard to figure out how to get good. The pros knew many things the recreational players didn't, and the best pros, like Phil Ivey, were light years beyond their competition. But the pros consistently made huge mistakes by today's standards, and much of their approach was driven by subjective assessments of their opponent's psychology and the flow of the game. Winning at poker was more of an art than a science. Post-2003, the poker bubble was inflated by dreams and exuberant speculation. You could become a star. It didn't even take much imagination to see how. 
All you had to do was watch an amateur like Moneymaker bluff a pro like Sammy Farha en route to riches and fame. Money came into poker by the millions, and because just about everyone had big leaks, it moved through the poker economy about as predictably as a Plinko chip. As years went by, books, websites, and experience helped players improve, and a new generation of pros, mostly young people, emerged. Some members of the previous generation, like Ivy and Eric Seidel, adapted and stayed relevant, but many fell by the wayside. And members of the younger generation, while honing their abilities by playing millions of hands online, got better and better at taking everybody's money. Flash forward to 2019. If you're a pro in 2019, you probably know about how good you are, and if you have any sense, you're spending most of your time in games you know you can beat. For me, that mostly means mid-stakes cash games. I put in about 90% of my poker hours at the cash tables. When I do play tournaments, they tend to be buy-ins of about $400 to $1,500. I've played fairly big games on occasion, mostly when I saw what I thought was good value. But I've looked back at some of those occasions in retrospect and wondered if I was just being reckless. I don't take wild shots in nosebleed games or super high rollers, not only because missing those shots would be really expensive, but because the poker world is fairly well sorted now, and in most cases, I know I'm not good enough to beat those games. The main event is not well sorted. The buy-in is $10,000, which makes it a huge tournament, just massive. And yet thousands of recreational players enter, because it's the highest profile tournament of the year to be broadcast over and over on ESPN. The field also includes tons of strong players, but they're a smaller percentage than in a typical $10,000 buy-in tournament, which means there are opportunities for low to mid-level pros like me. I'm spending about three weeks in Las Vegas this summer. Along with the main event, I'm playing smaller buy-in tournaments like the Monster Stack and the Colossus, which also attract huge fields. I put together a package that includes all that stuff along with the main. Overall, my package came out to about $28,000, and I sold 47% of myself at a small markup. As I write the words you're hearing now, I'm in bed, taking a couple days off to deal with what I think is just exhaustion. The cash game grind is hard enough. I'm playing a lot and not running very well. That alone makes me feel a little helpless. But I'm also playing online tournaments and studying tournament situations, and I find myself overwhelmed trying to grasp the subtleties. Many cash game players think they're better than tournament players. Tournament players often give away money at the cash tables because they're not used to the complexities of deep-stacked cash game play and cash players are frequently amazed at the low quality of play when they enter tournaments themselves. There aren't many live tournament players below the higher stakes who put in the hours cash game regulars do, because the tournament schedule restricts the amount of time they can play. Tournament players also spend many of the hours they do play with stack sizes that force them to make straightforward decisions. They aren't worried about balancing their turn check raises when they only have 15 big blinds. And the sheer amount of variance in tournaments makes it hard to tell who's good and who's not. At least some of the people you've heard are tournament crushers are just average players. But that doesn't mean the cash players really are better. The finer points of tournament play are hard for cash players to master. When to try to steal blinds, whether to go all in with your short stack or race to a smaller amount, when to gamble with your stack and when to play conservatively, 
and just generally, how to think about your stack when the value of your chips isn't measured in dollars. Cash players don't usually think about those things, and in tournaments, whether you get them right or wrong can lead to massive swings in expected value, especially in the later stages. To paraphrase high-stakes cash player Doug Polk, tournaments are about setting up perfect situations. Looking at your hand, and what other players have done before it was your turn, and your stack size, and the stack sizes of anyone who's put chips in the pot, and the stack sizes of the players who haven't acted yet, and the tendencies of all those players, and whether we're in the money, and if so, whether there's about to be a pay increase. Tournaments are about considering all those things and making exactly the right move. Even after the fact, it can be hard to figure out what play was best, but that's what tournament players have to do. So I've spent the last month or so trying to relearn tournament strategy, and it's hard. There are other stressors too. There's a good chance this will be my first losing month since last year, since I'm investing my own money in buy-ins to high-variance tournaments with massive fields rather than playing cash. I'll also have to answer to my investors if I come up empty. They're all poker players, so they understand how these things work, but I still want to do the most I can for them. I won't know most of my opponents, which will make decisions harder, and I'll be staying in a mostly unfamiliar city in boiling hot weather, sitting in tournament rooms with thousands of other players, and waiting in ungodly lines for the bathroom. And those are just the easiest problems to deal with. Suppose things go really well, and I run deep in one of these tournaments. I could be making decisions worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. That's a great problem to have, but I still want to think about that possibility, because I've never done that before. I might also end up on TV. What if I make a bad decision on TV? I don't think I would, or at least I don't think I would make a bad decision purely because there are cameras present. But I don't know for sure. Or what if the main event goes perfectly and I win it? Obviously, that's unlikely, but a meaningful chunk of my equity in the tournament comes from the tiny possibility of winning it outright, so let's consider what that might mean. First place is likely to be at least $8 million. Of that, I'd have to pay over $3 million to my backers, and another couple million of what remains to the government. That would leave around $3 million for me. What would I do with that money? I actually don't know. It would free me from ever having to worry about money again. I'd save some for retirement, and maybe I'd start some new business venture, and that's all good. But what about poker? Having that money would surely change my relationship to the game. Maybe I'd quit poker entirely and start some new chapter of my life. Or maybe winning would further awaken my competitive spirit, and I'd play big games or travel the tournament circuit. Again, these are all good problems to have, but I don't need some huge payday to fix the life I have now, and I don't waste much time pondering what would happen if I actually hit one. That's not the mentality of a cash game player. So, again, why do this? Well, to challenge myself, to grow, to have experiences, to make memories, and yeah, for life-changing money. So, here I go. The next segment was recorded in Las Vegas, and you can hear the recirculated air of the Rio in my voice. Apologies for that, but I think it captures how I was feeling at the time. It's June 25th, 2019. I've been in Las Vegas for four days, and I'm 0 for 4 in the tournaments I've played uh, for the first two days. I played the Monster Stack, which is a $1,500 event 
which has about 6,000 entrants of which about 900 cash. And I came within about 20 people of making the money and busted with ace queen suited against aces with what I'm guessing was about 30 minutes to go before the bubble, um, which was frustrating. I uh, lost some pretty annoying pots early on in the tournament, never really ran ran up a big stack, but was able to grind through almost two full days, uh, but came up empty in the end. Uh, the next day I played a $550 event at Win. This was a one-day event with a much faster structure, so whereas you can pass on some close spots in an event like the Monster Stack, which is much slower, in a one-day event, especially you know one like this that had 600 people and half-hour levels, you kind of just have to go for it in a lot of situations. Uh, I did pick up a bunch of big hands in that one and played a couple of spots against what turned out to be pretty good players in a way that was somewhat less than ideal. I don't know if I played horribly, but I, there are a couple of little spots I'm not super happy with. But I did manage to run up a stack in that one. Unfortunately, a stack in that one, it, you know, when you reach a certain point, is like 25 big blinds. And I ended up getting in, I think, yeah, it was like 27 big blinds or something like that pre-flop with pocket tens. I got snap called by ace jack and uh, lost that flip. And it's the kind of thing where it was almost a 60 big blind pot, which is just like a huge stack in a tournament like that. So, you know, you just, you need to win flips in tournaments with big fields, especially tournaments in big fields with fast structures and we didn't win that one and today i played a 600 event uh back at the rio a deep stack event busted my first bullet in i think the second level running uh, a huge three barrel bluff against a guy who just was not gonna fold top pair apparently so that's fine then bought in a second time and just had a really frustrating go of it where I just didn't pick up many reasonable starting hands, didn't have a lot of interesting spots, uh, and eventually was down to about 15 big blinds and I picked up aces under the gun plus one. I min-raised to 3,200. The button raised to 7,800, which was awesome, and then... The small blind had about 12,000 total and jammed it in. I shoved for 23k total and the button folded, which surprised me. The small blind flipped over pocket nines and there was a nine in the window. So we didn't win that one and then we were down to something like six and a half big blinds and shipped it in the next hand with king, two not, king 10 offsuit only to run into the same player with pocket kings. Obviously, well, not obviously, but really none of this is any sort of big deal. These buy-ins, you know, 1500 for the monster stack and then five or 600 for these other tournaments aren't going to make or break me and aren't a huge deal. And in fact, because I'm playing the main event this year and I've never played the main event before, I just created a package for investors that included not only the main event, but all these smaller events as well, figuring that I'm fairly certain I'm profitable in all these 
smaller, you know, 1500 and below type events. And I can't prove I'm profitable in the monster or in the, in the main event because I've never played it. So this is a way of, of giving more value to my investors. But anyway, the fact that I went 0 for 4 so far in these smaller events is even less of a big deal to me financially than it normally would be because my investors have a fair amount of that action. But this experience for the past four days leaves me wanting to learn so much more about how to be the best at tournament poker or how to be really good at tournament poker. I play cash games every day and for the most part cash games are not mysterious to me. You might occasionally run into a player who is initially hard to figure out but if they're not taking certain kinds of of routes in certain kinds of situations they're going to end up costing themselves money in the long run and by simply studying these situations yourself you can come out ahead and you might run bad but you're not going to run badly for too long whereas in tournaments you might run quite bad for a very long time for no reason even if you're you know one of the best players in the field which I'm not I certainly am not and it's so tricky to piece together how to to play these exact situations when there's this sort of plethora of different stack sizes at play in every hand and players of massively different skill levels involved in every hand the typical table at a smaller event in the world series of poker will be like there will be one pro you've probably heard of who's maybe worked for a training site or you've seen play on tv and then there will be maybe three other people who also seem to be pros and are playing anywhere from fairly well to very well and then there are maybe two recreational players who are serious and pretty good at the game and then there will be three people who are less well studied and there's all these the other players sort of chasing each other around these these wrecks in a lot of pots and what that can mean is that there are a lot of good professionals who play pretty tight there are also some who play very loose and there's not that wide divergence of styles in cash games necessarily and so in these tournaments with huge fields you might only get to play with somebody for an hour or a few hours maybe and then they'll just disappear into the wind and you might see something like you'll play three orbits with somebody and let's say that you don't get many hands to play in these three orbits you play one hand or two hands and you start with 50,000 in chips and then when those three orbits are over you still have around 50,000 in chips but there's some other player maybe it's someone you've heard of maybe it's not maybe it's some young kid from Europe who you've never seen before and they also come to the table with 50,000 in chips but they play seven hands or nine hands in those three orbits and they don't show down many hands and they just take down a lot of pots without being contested too much and at the end of those three orbits they have 75,000 in chips and then you think to yourself wait what just happened why did they have 75,000 in chips now and 
I only have 50,000. Did they just get much better cards than me in those three orbits? Maybe. Did they make a bunch of idiotic decisions in those three orbits that turned out really well? Also totally possible. Or did they just see a lot of stuff you didn't see and create a, a bunch of opportunities for themselves that you wouldn't have been able to create for yourself and run up a stack that way? Again, that's also possible. So I'm just seeing a lot of things, not being totally sure what they mean. I'm skeptical that everyone I've seen do something like this is actually good, but I also suspect that many of them are actually really good. And it makes me want to get better at tournament poker and demystify this process. I used to play a ton of tournaments online. I'm not sure I ever got really good, but I was profitable. But these live tournaments, especially these live tournaments with huge fields, are a totally different beast. And it's just hard to demystify the process and figure out how to get better. So I think it's going to start with going home after this trip is over and really committing a lot of hours to playing online tournaments, even though that is not the most exciting thing for me to be doing. And it's certainly not the most profitable thing I can be doing. And continuing to look into ways to improve at mastering these dynamics with stack sizes and pressure and just exploiting people who are not that great at playing post-flop. And those are things that I suspect the best pros are really doing better than me. So there's a lot more work for me to do, and I feel it really keenly. I felt it last time I was in Vegas, too, which was two years ago, and I really feel it now. Being around all these players who are, in a lot of cases, from all over the world, and probably the best players in whatever poker room they play in just getting to see these people play and wondering what they're doing better than me uh, really makes me want to figure out how to get better Being stuck in the Rio for three weeks is a steep price to pay for having dreams. It's huge and deeply uncomfortable. During breaks, the halls are filled with poker players barking hand histories into their cell phones and vendors yelling obnoxiously at anyone who might listen. It's usually about 110 degrees outside, which is to say about 45 degrees warmer than it is inside, and you have to walk through a cloud of cigarette smoke to get to your car. Food options at the Rio are limited and underwhelming, and lines for anything can be nightmarish. Two friends and I are staying in an Airbnb about three miles away. The place is a sandstorm of mismatched beds and furniture chosen by someone who's really into religion and alcohol. There's Christian iconography everywhere, including behind the bar in the living room. Many days we play poker for 10 to 12 hours. But when we're knocked out early, we drink with old friends, or toss frisbees as the sun sets, or talk to our girlfriends back home. We're waiting for something to happen. And for these first few days, not much has. But there's time for that to change. In the season finale of Third Man Walking, I'll review a couple more weeks of World Series tournaments, including the main event.
Thanks for listening to Third Man Walking. You can find me on Twitter at Third Walking and via email at thirdmanwalkingpodcast at gmail.com.